Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter, that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Francis Fukuyama, who is one of the leading political thinkers of our era. He's currently affiliated at Stanford University and author of the must-read new book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Professor Fukuyama, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you very much for having me. In Liberalism and Its Discontents, you argue that liberalism faces threats from both ends of the political spectrum. Let's start by situating that thesis for our listeners. How are John Rawls and Milton Friedman avatars of these two perspectives? What, counterintuitively, do they have in common? It's a little bit complicated, an answer to that. Uh, I think that they've been seen as avatars of a certain kind of liberalism on both the left and the right, but I actually think that they're representatives of a, a distortion or a deformation of liberalism that accounts for some of the reasons that people are unhappy with the doctrine right now. So let's take Milton Friedman. Liberalism for several centuries has been associated with free markets, with economic growth. The liberals support property rights and the freedom to transact, and they're very closely associated with all of the economic growth that's made the modern world as rich uh, and prosperous as it is. Milton Friedman is a liberal, or starts from those liberal premises, but he was really the avatar of something that's now labeled neoliberalism, this University of Chicago school that, in a sense, worshipped free markets, turned it from a, you know, an empirical observation uh, to a, a kind of religion, and also denigrated the state as an obstacle to growth and efficiency. And this has led to a transformation. This change in ideas has led to a transformation of the kind of early post-World War II capitalism into this supercharged globalization that we've seen that's produced a lot of inequality. And as the financial sector was deregulated under its guidance, uh, a lot of instability that left a lot of ordinary people out of their homes because their mortgages had uh, they couldn't afford anymore and the like. And so I think that he was really somebody that stretched liberal principles too far. John Rawls, on the other hand, takes a different tack, which has to do with personal choice. So liberals want to protect individual autonomy. That is our ability to make basic choices in our life about where to live, what kind of work we're going to do, who we're going to marry, what we're going to believe, and the like. But as time went on and under the influence of Rawls, the act of choosing became more important than what was chosen, uh, 
the substance of what was chosen. Uh, he said that in a liberal society, you know, the principle of kind of not interfering with other people's choices is more important than the actual choice you make. And so, you know, it, it led to a forgetting about the ends of why people want to live in, in liberal societies. You know, they don't want to be free from religion. A lot of people actually want to be able to freely practice their chosen set of religious beliefs, or they want to live in a particular cultural tradition and the like. And Rawlsian liberalism, you know, is telling them, really, no, it's actually just the bare act of choice that's important, uh, and not that you choose wisely or that you, you know, act virtuously and that sort of thing. So once again, I don't think that this is genuine classical liberalism. I think that this is, in a sense, a deformation of some of those classical liberal ideas. So we've, in effect, been pulled to the right uh, in the form of a kind of uh, overreach of economic liberalism and pulled by the left in the form of an overreach of cultural liberalism. Yeah. Let me take you up on the title of the book in the sense of discontent and disillusionism, disillusionment, rather, of liberalism. How much of it, Professor Fukuyama, is a reflection of liberalism failing to deliver the good, so to speak, versus the fact that liberalism is kind of boring? I think, for instance, of young people in search of intellectual and moral stimulus. One wonders if so-called wokeism on one hand and post-liberal conservatism on the other hand aren't signs at some level of intellectual boredom. Uh, what, what do you think of that proposition? Well, I think that both of the phenomena that you pointed to are correct. So no liberal society has ever fully delivered on its promise of the equal treatment uh, of all people under the law, right? And we see this in the United States where, you know, African Americans are incarcerated at much higher rates than whites and, and, and so forth. And so that's a failure to live up to your promise. On the other hand, uh, I do think that, you know, the dissatisfaction with liberalism does have to do with the fact that, you know, liberalism deliberately lowers the sites of politics. It says we're not going to focus on, you know, a, a clear, clearly defined common good. We're not all going to be pulling together. Everybody gets to do their own thing and, and make decisions for themselves. And I think a lot of people want more than that. And so this is actually a complaint on both the, the, the right and the left. I mean, the right would like to say, we need, you know, shared religious values that bind our society together. I think people on the left would say, well, you know, marginalized groups uh, need to realize what they have in common and struggle for that kind of social justice, even if that means violating certain other kinds of liberal principles. And I do think that, you know, it's very easy to get bored, frankly, in a liberal society that simply offers peace and prosperity. People want to be able to struggle. They've got this side of their personality that seeks recognition and dignity and gets very indignant when people don't recognize the same causes and gods and, and you know, uh, forces that they do. And that's what I think has pushed many people to reject liberalism. Is this a serious problem, uh, Professor Fukuyama, embedded in the DNA of liberalism, that on one hand, it's the best doctrine to organize a pluralistic society, but on the other hand, as you say, it fails to provide a sense of fulfillment. It, it reminds me a bit of Irving Kristol's famous phase, capitalism is only worth two cheers. In a world where liberalism is only worth two cheers, 
what needs to happen in politics or civil society or some other parts of our collective life to fill the gap that's necessarily unfilled by liberalism. You know, ideally, those kinds of energies, you know, the, the striving for social justice and a better life can be fulfilled in different ways, you know, in civil society. So every liberal society has a dense layer of groups that get together to advocate for some, you know, cause, uh, you know, underdevelopment in Africa or, you know, taking care of children, you know, suffering from various diseases and so forth. And I think that serves as a productive and peaceful way of bleeding off some of that energy. Uh, On the other hand, it's not enough for a lot of people because they actually want a much bigger kind of social transformation. You know, they want to see the entire society uh, committed to the same kinds of justice goals that they are, which is the counterpart to the people on the right that want a common cultural horizon that basically everybody has to acknowledge. So I do think that there's a cycle that, you know, people, they, they like liberal societies the best when they experience something that's not liberal. Right, so if they live in a in a war torn society like Europe uh, in the first half of the twentieth century, or if they live under a communist dictatorship, which was the case in Eastern Europe up until the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, then you know they're happy to escape to a liberal society where they can just do their do their own thing. But then over time, they kind of take that for granted, and they say, "Yeah, but still, my life, you know, needs deeper meaning." Uh, and I think that's when you get these attacks against uh, liberalism. And so it may be that we are doomed to go through these cycles of, you know, complacency and then being reminded again, you know, of why it's actually better to live in a liberal society. The book argues for a renewed sense of moderation. Um, and listeners will hear in your voice and disposition that you're the consummate moderate. But there are a bunch of forces working against moderation these days, including, of course, parts of social media. How can we get back to valuing moderation in our society? How can we wrestle control of our politics from the political extremes? Well, that's a really tough uh, question because I think the polarization and extremism is driven by uh, a lot of different forces. Uh, so as you suggest, you know, the rise of social media is, uh, is one factor where you know, there's a value placed on virality and offending people and saying things that you wouldn't say in a, in a civil conversation, you know, face to face. And I think everybody is wrestling with how to deal with that. I think that content moderation has kind of risen to the top of the agenda for a lot of these big internet platforms, but we've got a big problem deciding on who it is that decides what's acceptable speech and what's not, because liberals are you know, committed to freedom of speech. And it's, you know, not clear that we want the government to be setting these standards, but it's also not clear that we want these big internet platforms to be doing uh, uh, that either. So I don't know what the solution to that in particular is. I think that most technologies have challenged the political order when they were introduced, you know, even things like, you know, the the (laughs) printing uh, really launched the Protestant Reformation. Uh, which was very disruptive, you know, in in Europe and radio launched the careers of Mussolini and Hitler. And, you know, that also had a devastating effect. And so, you know, I think we have to go through this process of social learning to 
see how we deal with those challenges posed by these new technologies. There are other sources of of resentment, though, that aren't so technology-based. I think that there's a new class divide that's emerged in many countries, in the United States, in Canada, in Europe, where on the one hand, you have urban professionals with pretty good levels of education that live in big cities that have lots of connections to the global economy that are doing pretty well economically uh, and have very liberal social values. And then other people that aren't situated in in quite that fashion. And most of the polarization centers around that kind of social divide that really, in the end, is a divide over levels of education. And, you know, to deal with that, I think that, you know, there are several things. I think the economic part of it needs to be addressed because a lot of working class people have had their lives very severely disrupted, first by, you know, globalization and outsourcing, most recently by the COVID epidemic. Uh, You know, if you work with your hands, you had to show up for work. And if you work in front of a computer screen, you, you know, you did just fine. But then there's a cultural problem in which, you know, there's a a kind of spiraling sense of distrust of people on the other side. Political scientists label this effective polarization, where you're not just disagreeing about policy issues or political preferences. You really just hate people on the other side because you think that, you know, they're out to get you uh, or your identity is somehow directly under attack. And that, I think, was something that just needs to be dealt with through you know, through leadership, through, you know, a kind of recognition that there are legitimate grievances that people hold on the, uh, you know, on the other side of the divide. And, you know, hopefully that's something that actually can be addressed in a democratic political system. But I must say, I've been really surprised and disappointed at how those processes haven't worked uh, over the last few years. And that, at least in the United States, you know, we seem to be getting to even higher degrees of polarization after, you know, September 11th, after the financial crisis, after the COVID epidemic, all of these things that you might have imagined would bring us together more, you know, have actually exacerbated the divide. So this is a long-winded way of saying that I'm not quite sure what, you know, what the ultimate solution to that is. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Professor Fukuyama, you've made various observations in the context of the Russian-Ukraine war. You've, you've argued on one hand that Russia's unprovoked invasion of Ukraine and the Ukrainian resistance may represent a moment of renewed spirit and vigor in the world of liberalism. But you've also argued that one of the lessons of this episode is that liberalism must be embedded in some form of nationalism. Why do you think liberalism must be attached to the geographic and cultural expression of the nation? And is this something that post-war liberals got wrong? Not all of them, but I do think that there is a tendency, you know, so in, in liberal theory, all human beings have a certain basic dignity that needs to be respected. 
And so human rights are not things that simply exist within one territory, like you know the old idea about the rights of Englishmen. Human rights are, are rights that apply everywhere in the world in theory. And that leads a lot of liberals to say that they're citizens of the world and that they care as much about you know, what happens to people you know, in Bangladesh or in you know, Uganda as much as you know, their neighbors uh, in, a, in a rich liberal society. And I think that that's problematic in two senses. I mean, first of all, just given the way people are, are emotionally, you know, nobody, there's very few people that are genuinely uh, citizens of the world. Everybody, you know, cares most about people that are closer to them. And the nation is really kind of the largest unit of social solidarity that really provokes, you know, a very strong emotional response of patriotism and loyalty and the like. The other uh, issue is a kind of practical one that the nation remains the political unit that controls violence, legitimate violence, right? It's really only nations that are able to field armies and police forces that ultimately are, you know, if they're they're legitimate and they're democratically legitimated, uh, they're the ones that keep order, defend the community, and most importantly, enforce those rights. Liberal rights are kind of meaningless unless they're enforced and you need a nation to enforce them. And you don't want nations necessarily using uh, their own power to enforce rights in other countries because that's going to lead to a pretty chaotic world. So that's why I think the use of force, legitimate force, needs to be territorially bounded uh, to the community that has basically signed on to a social contract in which you know, people give up their right to arm themselves and defend themselves in any way that they see fit. They give it up to a state that promises to defend them through, you know, through police power uh, and the like. Uh, and again, that's all centered on nations and not on other kinds of entities. As we have this conversation, the, the Russians are bogged down. And one of the ways in which they're reacting is a strategy of devastating destruction and the targeting of civilians. How long can Western liberal democracies stand aside and watch what's happening without some form of intervention? Well, I think that, you know, the Western democracies have been giving a lot of aid to Ukraine. I think that, you know, they've been extremely cautious up to this point because Russia has nuclear weapons. You know, there's lots of ways that they can escalate and nobody wants this to escalate into a broad uh, NATO-Russia war. So they've been cautious. But, you know, at this point, they're really providing uh, Ukraine with some pretty powerful weapons. You know, my personal opinion is that this stalemate is not going to go on for much longer. I think uh, the Ukrainians are very likely to push the Russians out of the areas that they occupied after February 24th, and that that's likely to happen in the coming, in the coming weeks. But, you know, there is this moral problem that it's really only Ukrainians that are dying and they're dying in the tens of thousands in a fight that is really, you know, in which they're bearing a a cause uh, for all of us because Russia doesn't just threaten Ukraine. It threatens, you know, every other country in uh, Europe and it threatens the very idea of democracy because that's something that Putin has, uh, you know, criticized and uh, you know, he's one of the leading proponents of a non-democratic alternative. Uh, so his success would be very bad, I think, for everybody. 
And so that, you know, I think that does raise a great moral dilemma that, you know, it's the Ukrainians that uh, are, are bearing this broader burden. Professor Fukuyama, if I can come back to the topic of liberalism being somewhat boring, the book does an extraordinary job of providing a museum to liberal thinking. How much were early liberal thinkers and philosophers attuned to the risk of liberalism neutrality on issues of virtue? Or did, did it not occur to them because they were writing in an age of such high levels of religiosity? Well, I think a, a little of both. I mean, certainly the early liberal thinkers grew up in worlds that were basically theocratic. You know, you had established churches and in Europe, the authority of Christianity was really unquestioned by, uh, by anybody. And so to argue for religious tolerance was actually quite a, you know, a risky thing to do. Uh, but I think it's precisely for that reason that they made those arguments, you know, that liberalism was born at the conclusion of the European wars of religion, when Protestants and Catholics or different sects of Protestants had spent, you know, the previous 150 years killing each other. You know, in the Thirty Years' War, uh, in the beginning of the uh, 17th century, the, uh, you know, Germany lost maybe a third of its population in this kind of conflict. And so, the deliberate effort to lower the objectives of politics was undertaken by people that lived through that. You know, Thomas Hobbes is not generally understood to be a liberal, but he really is the father of the idea of the universality of the right to life. And his writings came directly out of his experience of the English Civil War uh, in the 1640s. And, you know, this idea that people fighting for these higher religious ends were you know, devastating his own society and that people needed a different structure by which they could tolerate and live with each other. And that's really why the Leviathan, you know, was written. So, you know, the, the lowering of sites uh, and, and, you know, the laying the ground for a boring society was actually, you know, the byproduct of a lot of violent conflict that made that shift, uh, you know, quite deliberate. Let me ask you a penultimate question. We talked a bit earlier about the extent to which ideas about markets in the 1970s, 1980s, and beyond were taken too far. I think it's fair to say that idea has increasing resonance among policy, the policy establishment. But your arguments about the overreach of individualism and individual autonomy may be less salient with some listeners who assume that these developments have manifested in, in things like the growing acceptance of gays and lesbians are inherently good. Where did liberalism go wrong when it comes to the cultural sphere? How do we go from the dignity of the individual to the growing radicalism that we've seen on issues of culture and identity? Well, let's take the question of identity politics, uh, which is you know the major manifestation of the progressive form of what I think is a distorted form of liberalism. So there's one version of identity politics that is completely in line with liberal principles, and that is a view that says that we have these identities as, you know, let's say African-Americans or women or gays and lesbians, but we're denied the equal treatment by the broader liberal society. People don't respect us. There may be legal obstacles to our living the kinds of equal and full lives that liberalism promises, and we simply want to be included in that uh, larger mainstream. Uh, so that form of identity politics is really a version of liberalism and, and upholds liberal ideas. 
but some versions have actually turned anti-liberal, where people have said, well, actually, because we are members of these marginalized communities, the experience is really not commensurate with anyone anyone outside of our community has experienced. And the oppression that we felt is so determinative that that's really the most important kind of essential characteristic of us, you know, our skin color, our ethnicity, our gender, our gender orientation. And, you know, we want to be recognized, therefore, on the basis of those group characteristics and not on the basis of what we accomplish as individuals. And that, uh, you know, shifts over into something that is not liberal, because one of the fundamental building blocks of liberalism is this idea that we are judged as individuals and that we have this fundamental equality underneath the, you know, what liberals regard as superficial characteristics of skin color and economic status. Uh, We have this moral core that makes us all human beings. And, you know, there is a tendency on the cultural left to deny that universality in favor of a social justice that would you know, recognize people first and foremost as members of of particular groups. Uh, So that's, you know, I think the point at which that kind of progressivism goes wrong. The other thing is that many progressives, because liberal societies have failed in the past to really deliver on the equality that they promise, you know, believe that bad things like racism and patriarchy are baked into liberalism, that somehow this is an essential part of the doctrine itself, rather than accidental features of the fact that liberals, you know, in in the 19th century simply weren't conscious of, you know, women's equality or the equality of other, you know, racial groups and and so forth, uh, and therefore attack liberalism as such, which I think is, you know, in a way guilt by association. It's not you know, that kind of discrimination is not the product of liberal principles. It's a violation of liberal principles. And it's something that liberal societies have been able to correct over time. But, you know, many people continue to believe that it's something deeply rooted somehow in liberal ideas. And that, I think, is also wrong. That sense of a time horizon is a good segue, uh, Professor Fukuyama, to my final question. In, in a recent Wall Street Journal essay, you make the case for the, quote, arc of history. What do you mean? And how, as a society, can we minimize what you describe as, quote, discontinuities along the way? Well, that article uh, harks back to my original end of history, uh, both the article and the book, The End of History and the Last Man. And, you know, a lot of people uh, have completely misunderstood the meaning of history as I was using it. A lot of them didn't bother to actually read what I had written. But, you know, history is not just events happening. You know, history is meant in this uh, sense of history with a capital H, which you might otherwise call today modernization or development. And the question is, you know, is there a kind of universal pattern of development that human societies have experienced over time? Uh, You know, I spent a lot of time earlier in my career working on development issues, you know, uh, how do you create institutions in poor countries, you know, working with the World Bank and other development agencies. And, you know, to me, the the idea that there is not such a thing as history with a capital H is just ridiculous. I mean, 
you go to, I don't know, Guatemala or Myanmar or Nigeria or any number of other poor, disorganized countries with very weak uh, institutions, you see that the quality of life is really different from living in Canada or Switzerland or the United States or Japan. You know, it makes a big difference that you've actually industrialized and pulled yourself up uh, economically so that your children don't die before they're five years old, so that you have the freedom you know, from a kind of daily violence that is experienced by many people in, in the developing world. And that's what I mean by history. You know, it's, it's that journey from, let's say, Guatemala or El Salvador to Texas uh, or California that represents the arc of history. And that's something very real. Uh, and it's something that, you know, we need to understand. And we, you know, for all the problems in the contemporary United States, People are not moving from the United States, you know, to El Salvador and Guatemala. They're moving in the other direction. And, you know, we, we need to think about why that is and what it is that, you know, has made, uh, you know, the one society very different from the other. Well, one way to understand some of those big questions is to read the book, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Francis Fukuyama, it's been a great honor and pleasure to have you at Hub Dialogues. Right. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening.